Welcome to Dr. Waffle and Friends, a podcast where we share personal writing and then chat about it together. And now, here's Tanya with the reading. Fragile. The mattress is upright, wedged between a wall and a sofa, in Alice's garage. The excess furniture belying the space limitations of their house. Alice's dad doesn't have tenure. I like to walk to her house after school and play. And then her mom makes spaghetti with meatballs with chewy goo-goo squares for dessert. Alice and I sometimes play in the creek, catching salamanders. Or she shows me how to skateboard, her long blonde hair catching the motion. It's usually just the two of us. But today, James is with us in the garage. And we are taking turns climbing up the mattress. Alice scaled the mattress, rock climber grip and footing. Now, James is on the way up, but I want a turn. I want him to come down and let me try to do what looks so easy and free on Alice. I want to climb up to the top. So, I grab the waist of his pants and I pull. Stop it, he cries out. I pull harder, clinging to him, who clings to the mattress that starts to bow away from the wall. I wanted him to come down, and down he is coming, his body falling backward, dappled by dusty streams of sunlight. I don't know if boys are fragile. I know my sister and I are. My mother must be fragile. Otherwise, why so self-protective? But my father is not. His voice booms, frightening away my friends and telemarketers, angering, belting out show tunes, impervious to embarrassment. So maybe men aren't fragile, but I don't know about boys. James is falling. If the sofa can break his fall, why do we call it breaking if he will not be broken? thudding down, dust settling in silence. Then he cries, exactly like a little boy. And I stand there and watch. Years later, I see him at a party, a crush-worthy taciturn teen playing poker in faded jeans and dusty boots, his fragility obscured by a cloud of clove cigarette smoke. Yay! Thank you so much, Tanya. That was really lovely. That is a really beautiful piece. Thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really glad to have the opportunity to share this. Yeah, it's um, it's it's really lovely. And I have to confess, I mean, I have a million questions, of course, about you know all our usual things that we we like to chat about. But um, I have to confess before we dive in that. I was really frightened the first time I read it, which I guess, I mean, it's really suspenseful. And I'm I'm kind of wondering, hoping that people listening to it are having that same experience that, you know, I was like kind of when I got to the part where you're pulling on his waistband and he's falling, I'm just I was I slowed down so much the first time I read it because I wanted to know what happened, but I didn't want to know what happened. So it did a really good job of kind of creating that sort of narrative suspense, which is really great. Oh, um, good. That's exactly yeah. what I wanted to happen with that, mm-hmm. you know, because yep. it takes a break to go into sort of this reverie about masculinity and fragility and all of that and kind of leaves you hanging as it left James hanging. Too. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And that was very naughty of you. No, <laughs> but yeah, you did that. That was exactly, exactly what you intended is what happened. I was like, what's happening? I want to read this part, but I need to find out what happened to James, but I don't want to know. So, so, okay. My first question for you about this is it's obviously different form than normal. I, I don't know if people listening can tell that it's actually broken up into line lengths like a poem, right? Mm-hmm. So my first question is to ask you if you consider this a poem. Is it the way you read it just now? I, I was like actually paying a lot of attention to the way you were reading it in order to kind of figure out what the experience of listening to it is like versus the experience of reading it. And I was imagining as I was listening that you couldn't tell, that you could imagine, mm-hmm. especially since everything else we do on this podcast is 
prose essays, right? I imagine mm-hmm. that the reader is probably assuming it's written on the page like prose, but it's not. It's written on the page like a poem. So my first question is, do, do you consider this a poem or a prose poem? Or if not, why did you decide to put it on the page the way that you did? And if so, I'd love to hear more about your thoughts about writing poetry, because this is this will be the first <laughs> that we've shared together on the podcast. So, Wow, so many questions. Mm-hmm. Well, let yeah. me start with where I created this poem, because mm-hmm. I was at a writing workshop at Esalen, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorite places to write. So there was an opportunity to get feedback on uh, the writing. And so this was actually the third version of it. But I think all of them, I sort of wrote on the page like this, and I don't know why. Mm. And being not a professor of literature like (laughs) some people in the room, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't don't know what to call it. I just know it's how it came out of me. Actually, you know, the first piece that I shared on this podcast was also written sort of like this, sort of more spoken word-y. So, yeah, so I never know what to call what I'm writing, but I do recognize that I did not write this like I write other things. It lacks punctuation, (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. among other things, and it's in these, like, you know, short lines. So, I don't know, professor of English literature, is this a poem? (laughs) Well, (laughs) um, notice how I started off by asking you if you thought it was a poem. (laughs) I I mean, obviously, I have a lot to say, but um, but I'm now thinking back to the first thing you shared on this podcast was the "I Come From" piece, right? Right. And if if I remember correctly, that was on the. It's true. I understand what you're saying. It has that same kind of feel of a kind of more elliptical or elusive or less kind of straightforward narrative the same way that the Charlottesville piece did. But I do believe, if I remember correctly, that that Charlottesville piece was written on the page like prose, whereas this really does have line breaks like poetry, unless I'm misremembering, mm-hmm. which is entirely possible. We can talk about memory problems some more later, as we did <laughs> as we did last week. <laughs> the longer we do this podcast, the more opportunity we will have to discuss memory lapses, I'm sure. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Both more opportunities and more reason, too. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So, okay, so back to the poem question. Well, this is, <laughs> this is as you can probably imagine, a sort of a, a vexed question uh, with a long history, a long critical history. I don't want to bore anybody, but I, the one thing I will say quickly is that just about a week ago, or maybe even less, I was doing some reading in preparation for a graduate seminar I'm teaching this semester on, it's called Creative Criticism. Mm. And the idea is it's designed for both our English PhD literature students, also our creative writing PhD students, and our MFA creative writing students. So the idea is to kind of use the seminar to think about what criticism is in the sense of its institutional history, what literary criticism does or how it got to be the way it is, why it makes certain moves, how that the kind of consensus around those moves came into being, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Anyway, in the course of doing this reading, I read a an article by Eve Sedgwick, who's a really well-known mm-hmm. literary critic. Yeah. And um she has taught a class. She did. She's not no longer with us, but she did back in the 90s and aughts, I think, teach a class very similar to this one. And I actually hadn't known about that when I started planning this course. And I came across this article in which she discusses teaching a graduate seminar called Creative Criticism. I was like, oh, well, great. I'm a, obviously, you know, in great company here. And she talks about that class and kind of takes you through the exercises and all the things that she does in the course. Very different from mine. But she discusses an exercise she has her students do in which they talk about poetry. And just as a total aside, she tosses off this little thing where she says, and poetry, of course, is just prose with line breaks. That's our definition, period. That's our working definition. And I I know that that is a, a definition that a lot of people use and adhere to, but I just loved the brio with which she (laughs) <laughs> you know, she's she's Eve Sedgwick. She, she's like, this is, you know, no room for discussion. I don't, it's not, you know, this is what I say it is, or this is what other people have said it is. And I'm, you know, this is what we're going to proceed with. And it just has an elegant simplicity to it, right? So by that definition, sorry, that was such a long way to get there. But by that definition, then yes, absolutely. It's a poem because it's, 
words on a page with line breaks as opposed well, to Well, if each Sedgwick considers me a poet, then how can I argue? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's hard it's hard to resist Eve Sedgwick telling you you're anything, I guess. <laughs> right. So then, okay, so if we both consider it a poem, then the next question is or the last question I think I posed there was, well, that's really interesting to me because you've never really talked about writing poetry before, and I wonder how that changes or does it change? the way you think about this this piece or other things that you've written. Uh, and, and let me be a little bit more specific there. I feel like with memoir that's written as prose, there's a kind of a conventional sense or a sort of understanding between the reader and the writer that this is true, that you are telling something about your life that really happened. Um, it has a kind of status, right, that's different maybe from a poem. We conventionally try to avoid assuming that the things that people write in poetry, even confessional poetry, are true, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I guess my first question is kind of philosophical. I did not like, know that. So yeah. I will say, you know. I... <laughs> yeah. Um, so does it change? Like, does it change how you feel about this piece as memoir um, mm -hmm. if it's poetry versus prose? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, like I just said, I, I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't even know if this was poetry. <laughs> so this is all very new information to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But but it is all true. Yeah. And, you know, I always say that I'm creative enough to write memoir, but I'm not creative or I'm creative enough to write things. I'm just not creative enough to make anything up. Mm. So everything I write is absolutely true. Mm -hmm, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like all factual. So yeah, it all happened this way. There's something about having written it in this way that makes it easier for me to write from a child's perspective. That's mm. clear to me. Mm -hmm. Because from a child's perspective, I don't have as much to say, I think. I just, mm. you know, it's sort of these very simple, short observations in life. And that's, I don't know if that's how all children see the world, but I don't think I had, the, you know, as much reflection and analysis and all these things. So it's like, oh, here's what's happening. And it's it's so briefer lines or shorter lines mm. sort of works for me from my child's mind. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. It's, I guess, part of what happens when you write this way is that you've removed like kind of one whole layer, right? Which is a sort of narratorial voice. Like even when we're writing memoir, we're writing the story from a kind of narrator's perspective. We're the narrator. We're the narrator of our own lives. But mm -hmm. there's a kind of a distance or a layering there that makes you feel as a writer and maybe the reader too, that there's supposed to be commentary, right? Or there often is commentary. Mm -hmm. um, you tell the thing, then you say what it means, or <laughs> you reflect or you make value judgments or you, you know, add adverbs or whatever. Whereas with right. something like this, you're just it's very spare. And you're just like, this is this is what happened. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really powerful that way because, like I said, it, it, le it left me kind of, A, just wondering what happens, but also, I don't know, there's something about the kind of immediacy of it that's really, that is really compelling. Uh, it mm -hmm. leaves a lot to be read between the lines. Like, what is what is the meaning of all of this, right? <laughs> and I, I mean, obviously, I have, you know, lots of thoughts and I'm sure you do too. So we'll get into that in a little bit. But yeah, I think that's a really helpful to hear it from the writer's perspective, what you're doing, or you were actually thinking of this quite consciously, that you wanted to have that kind of spareness or immediacy or lack of commentary kind of um, to capture that child's voice. And I think it works really well. So yeah. Oh, good. I mean, yeah. I have to say, I, I feel like I have so little control over my muse. She just, mm. you know, like mm -hmm. does what she will. And I end up with this or a book or you know, mm -hmm. a song, you know, mm -hmm. and so things come out of me in the ways that they do. And yeah, so this is just what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think probably most people's experience of writing is like that for sure. Oh, really? Like, I wouldn't I think, think so. That. I would think that people sort of have a have a genre that they write in. Is that the right word? Like, yeah, um, yeah, no, yes, absolutely. Form. And I, I don't mean to say that like everybody just writes completely unconsciously, <laughs> like like <laughs> Yates's automatic writing um, or whatever. Which, again, like, sure, Yates, yeah, that was just some spirit that spoke to you. You didn't have anything to do with that. I, <laughs> I totally believe you. But no, I guess I mean more like that. A lot of the 
I don't know how to put this exactly, but there's a kind of a middle ground between completely unconscious and completely mannered or analytical or thoughtful, right? So it's like right. no, but I but I but I mean more in terms of form. Like I feel like people mm. typically either write novels or mm. poetry or musicals or you know that that I don't so I don't so hmm, maybe I see what I'm you're wrong saying. about that. No, no, no. Or I see what you're saying. Now. Articles. Yeah. 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 <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Like, oh, I have a thought. What is this? What formal is take? Well, I, yeah. I have two things to say about that. First of all, oh, my my friend, the brilliant Melissa Ginsburg, who is a poet and novelist. So she has mm-hmm. several books of poetry and two novels and a third novel that she's working on right now. I've actually wow. posed this question to her, like, you have an idea. How do you know whether it's a poem or a novel? And I wish I could remember what she said. <laughs> I feel like she I feel like she had a great answer, but now I can't remember. Back Melissa, to the memory questions. Please write yeah, in. Exactly. <laughs> I'll ask her again. And, oh, I, I think I even asked it to her during a formal interview, like when her um her most recent book of poems came out, Doll Apollo, which is amazing. Go buy it, everyone listening to this. It's such a great book. I interviewed her at Square Books, uh, you know, kind of a formal interview with an audience and everything. And I asked her that question then, and I she said something great, but I honestly just can't remember. So yeah, we'll we'll put a maybe I'll ask Melissa, and then we'll put her answer in the show notes. Like, what is? Mm. How do oh, you know whether you're going to write know. a yeah poetry or or prose? I think she said something about. I don't want to put words in her mouth. Well, we'll see what she says. But anyway, that's issue number one. Issue number two is when I was in high school. My friend Nancy and I, who were all, we were so full of projects and plans. I mean, I still kind of am, and she definitely still is. You know, there's always like every day, it's like, oh, I have an idea for this. I have an idea for that. And we used to, we're super ambitious. And we're like, I have an idea for a musical. And let's do this huge thing. Let's do that huge thing. And then we would always joke about how like the things would just get smaller and smaller as we got more, like our ambitions were always like really huge. But then as we actually confronted what it would take to do the thing, we just decided. And so we, we had this running joke of like, oh, let's just make a haiku. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever great idea we'd have, we always like be like, oh, or we could just write a haiku. <laughs> Which, Which is hard. <laughs> Not oh, to denigrate haiku writing. Anyway, oh, no, like, that's actually how many things come to me is in haiku. I Really? I tip, oh, well, I write bisexual haiku, hashtag oh, haiku. Right. So I there's forgot. that. Yes, 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 yeah. of course. So yeah. I can write bisexual ha- haiku about just about any topic. <laughs> but also, I just wrote a haiku for like the woman who sells mushrooms at the farmer's market in Santa Barbara. Because we were having this conversation and it just inspired me. So like, I'm like leaving the farmer's market just on the way back to my car. Literally a haiku came into my mind. And so I wrote it down on my phone. And I just yesterday went back to the farmer's market and saw her again for the first time since then. I was like, I wrote you a haiku. And she was so happy about that. So that was lovely. And I, I think, I think maybe she threw in some extra shiitakes too. So. <laughs> nice. I thought this is great. Can I trade like haiku for produce? Yeah, you know, this God. Would be wonderful. Oh my God! It's like part of my, you know, my fantasy utopian future, right? Where we all live in, you know, matriarchal hunter gatherer units and barter. <laughs> but can do you remember the mushroom haiku? Can you share it with us? Wait, I have it. I'm gonna pull it up because I've got my. Okay, let's see. It goes like this. Happy Mushroom Girl brightens the farmer's market with umami love. Oh, that's wonderful. No wonder she gave you extra shiitakes. <laughs> Either that or she took a restraining order out on you. So <laughs> it was one or the other. I'm glad she took it the right way. <laughs> I know. It was a shiitake worthy haiku. <laughs> totally. Totally. Um, all right. I completely forgot where we were. Oh, po- right. The muse. How does but it But now this you? reminds me. I mm-hmm. forgot I am a poet. Like, I'm, right. Yeah. I, <laughs> I was going to say, you write haiku regularly. And haiku are not easy, right? Especially like, I feel like the whole trying to get all of your thoughts, compacting your thoughts into a really small space like that is actually really difficult. I think it's easier to write longer things and just blather on and on, as you can tell by my writings. <laughs> oh, and see, I yeah. find I'm, I'm the other way. Like, I mm. find the confines of haiku 
to be so comforting and mm. so much easier to write than a long thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and also I can come up with a haiku in the shower and remember it till I get out of the shower, you know, right. so yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can't do that with most things. But I also don't write the like, uh, I mean, haiku has a quality about it. In in addition to having the rules of like five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables, I can do the five, seven, five really easily. The mm-hmm. The sort of beauty of of it and and the way that people who really write it as a as a poetry form. I mean, I write it more as a, you know, sort of whimsy and sometimes educational about mm-hmm. bisexuality form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that that's interesting because that brings up that distinction between sort of seriously serious poetry or writing something as serious poetry, taking the form and the genre seriously, and then the the sort of whimsy or educational. It's almost the same distinction we were talking about before, right? Like is the fact that you know you you sat down to write this and it you weren't sitting down to write a poem. You weren't deliberately thinking, I am now going to engage in this long standing tradition and you know, blah, blah, blah. It was more just like this is how it came out in a way. Mm-hmm. But what I was going to say before is like that kind of middle ground between unconscious and conscious is, you know, we've obviously absorbed all of the sort of generic limitations and constraints and possibilities and meanings of these various forms. And so it's not, our muse is not operating in a vacuum, right? Our muse is also like, has a sense of, you know, in some level, what the best mode of expressing this particular set of feelings or thoughts or ideas is. And so we're not, it might not be conscious, but it's not naive either, right? Like it's not. Right. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love, yeah, mm-hmm. the me, the muse is paying attention. The muse yeah. is well-read. Exactly. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yes. The well-read muse. I feel like that's that should be the title of something. If it's not already, I feel like it's kind of familiar, but there's the something, I don't know. Uh, seriously, my brain, I'm not getting enough sleep lately and it's definitely oh, no. affecting my oh, memory. No. I know it's not great, but where are your words? I know. Where um, are the words? <laughs> but I mean, this is, I, I don't know. The, you know. I've talked about my relationship with writing at some points and it's it's just things come out as they will uh, mm-hmm. is, is my experience of them. and. I, oh, I guess I'll say this. I'm actually, you don't even know this. I'm actually writing a musical what? about, yes, a, about my cat, Jeremy, who you remember, Jeremy. Oh, of from, course I remember Jeremy. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was honestly, so I can't even remember if I've mentioned on the podcast that I, that I've just finished writing a new book. But I'm writing this, I just finished writing this book about surviving and thriving in politically polarized times. It's going to be out in August. And yay. yay, I know, because it's got to come out before the it. election. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, th- but we didn't mention that you're finished. So, yes. So, that's so awesome. I finished so, it. Yes. And the day that I was submitting uh, edits to the publisher, I just, it, this other thing came to me. And I was like, I was like, okay, I'm done writing like a nonfiction book about political conflict. And my mind was like, all right, I guess what's the next thing that's queued up? And I guess the next thing is like a musical about my cat. Well, so, of course. Well, of course. So, <laughs> and then, you know, haiku about the woman who sells mushrooms at the farmer's market. So, I, yeah, anyway, that's that's sort of the point, which is that I don't know what's going to come up, but I, I, but I, I allow it and I go with it. And I think yeah. that might be different from what some people might do with it, which is, you know, people might sort of stop themselves at some sure. point. Yeah. And apparently, that's the one thing I don't have the ability to do is just contain it. Um, but that's great. Can, that's great. Yeah. I mean, the reason people stop themselves is because they're anxious and intimidated and, and have low self-esteem or feel like they're not allowed to do or say or write certain things. So I think mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's great. Like, everybody should do <laughs> have you okay this is the weirdest reference that just popped into my head have you seen the movie forgetting sarah marshall yes okay do you remember an important detail about that movie which is that the jonas well, not jonas siegel oh god i always get their names mixed up mm, you know just, the, no, the one I, who was I in how remember. i met your mother or whatever the, uh, oh not, yes i love him yeah what's his name though Se- no i not, don't know not Seth. i don't know oh, and i won't know god I won't Jason even know if you Siegel. got it wrong. Okay. Jason Siegel. I the Josh, Josh, Jason, all those people, I get their mm. names mixed up. Anyway, 
Jason Siegel character is writing Wait, a music. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to tell you that I just had to get Matt to explain to me the difference between Justin Timberlake and Justin Bieber. So, oh wow, really, okay, yeah. I am not the person to be able to distinguish among okay. these yeah, kids. Yeah, this okay. is bad. And All there's right, two. Ahead. Yeah, there's He's like writing a musical. Mm-hmm. We had the two Corys, right? You remember the two Corey problem, and now Corey Feldman and Corey. I can't even remember the other Corey's name back in the day. And now there's all the Chris's with the Hemsworth and the Pine and the whatever. Anyway, okay. Jason Siegel, the Jason Siegel character in Forgetting mm-hmm. Sarah Marshall, is writing a musical with puppets right. about about Dracula, right? Of Dra- oh, or maybe it's a, mu- right. a musical of Dracula, and mm-hmm. it's this running thing throughout the whole mm-hmm. the whole movie. And then at the very end, you get to see yes. oh, there's like a scene where he sings one of the songs mm-hmm. to the um, the the new love interest, and it's kind of silly and kind of ridiculous, but also oh, kind of spoilers great. for uh, oh right, right. okay, Jessica Marshall, okay. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, there's a love interest. I didn't say who she is. There's just a love interest. And he, yeah, and he sings a song to her. But anyway, Mm -hmm. it's very, very, very charming and adorable. And kind of the whole point of it is that he's this weirdo who like has this weird idea for a musical, but that it's his passion and that that makes him really charming and adorable. And it kind of is a signal in the movie that he's a good person in a way, right? Mm -hmm. That he has this, this quirky little thing. It also reminds me of the Big Lebowski where that neighbor has the interpretive dance thing that they have to that they go to. Do you? When was the last time you saw I, the Big Lebowski? I'm. Uh, oh I'm no! Don't sure. tell me you've never seen the Big Lebowski. Tanya, how is this possible? I know. No, no, no. This is really bad. <laughs> you live in Southern California. I oh <laughs> no! Not only do I live in California, but. What's his name? Jeff Bridges lives here in Santa Barbara, I think, what? at least in Santa Barbara County. He's around. So, yes, okay. I know. It's this terrible. Is, this is really, okay, this has to be fixed immediately. Yeah. It's like, possible seriously. that I did see it. I think a friend of mine might have made me see it, but I've forgotten all of it now. So it it didn't stick. I, I'm. Well, I mean, yeah. Wh- when I say, have you seen The Big Lebowski, what I mean is, how many do you times? have it? Do you have it memorized? <laughs> and that—that's the only way to see the Big Lebowski mm-hmm. is to have seen it twenty times and to be able to recite long passages of it by heart. Anyway, there's again, this is not a spoiler at all, but there's a neighbor who is an interpretive dancer, and they go to see his interpretive dance performance at one point, and it's hilarious, and it's kind of poking fun at him because, of course, interpretive dance is always like a sort of a shorthand for silly pretentious, mm-hmm. whatever, but it's also really sweet and kind of adorable. And anyway, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. So it just reminded me of that, you know, the, the, I don't know how we got off on this tangent or I got <laughs> off on this Dracula puppet musicals. But you um, said that there was an important detail. Was that the important detail is that he was, you also, I know, know an awful lot about Dracula. So I was I like, do, is there I some do. new insight has, about Dracula you're no, going to provide related It has to nothing this? to okay. do with Dracula. It could have been really about anything. I think it's okay. adorable that it's Dracula. But Now now I have to share like my favorite thing about that, that actor when he's on How I Met Your Mother is that there's, <laughs> this is actually my favorite thing about the entire series, which I watched the whole thing during the pandemic. I'd never mm. seen it before. But there's one episode where he's made a pie chart of his favorite bars and a bar graph of his favorite pies (laughs) i obviously i've never seen i've never seen the show i mean i've seen i've seen isolated episodes but i've never sat down and watched the whole thing so i don't do not know that one but that is really great and that also strikes me as a very tanya kind of joke i can see why why, why you particularly liked that? That's just funny. yeah, it just tickles me. Yeah, yeah, that's really that's really great. Um, he's super charming. Anyway, yes, he is. Um, so, should, okay. do you want to talk about the content of? Yes, this? I do. Yeah. I was just saying back to back to the poem story thing, whatever yeah. it is. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, that was my next set of questions. So, first mm-hmm. of all, you, you already answered my first question, which is this is a thing that actually happened, and but there's something about. What I, f- I found really interesting about it is that James is fine. There's no spoilers mm-hmm. here because everybody's already heard you read mm-hmm. <laughs> the yes. piece at this point. <laughs> James is fine. He doesn't, he falls, but then you don't actually come right out and say it. But this is one of the things I like about it so much is that there's a sort of, you know, the elliptical implication that he falls on the couch because you have this kind mm-hmm. of, you do have a kind of a actually 
a, a narratorial voice there, right? It's not mm. completely in the child's perspective because you do step back and ask this. You mm. ask a series of rhetorical questions, right? You ask, there's a section where you ask all the questions about masculinity. And mm. then you ask the questions about why do we call it breaking a fall? And so you are in and out of the child's voice, or maybe you step mm. out of it, you know, entirely at that point. But we, as readers, infer that he falls on the couch and it's all fine. And then you're back into the, your child perspective and he's crying, et cetera. So my question is, it's not actually a very dramatic incident in the sense that, you know, as a reader, you start reading it and you think, well, there's a poem about this or a memoir piece or whatever we're calling it about this because something really bad happened. That's mm-hmm. what we tend to remember and write things about. And nothing happens at all. So it's actually a pretty minor incident, really. And so my question is, why it? Why do you think it stuck with you so much? Like, why did you have such a vivid memory of it that you wrote something about it? Oh, that's such a great question and beautifully framed. I think I was thinking about, well, if I've, you know, whenever in my life I've done things that I feel like might be harmful to other people, it's mm-hmm. very hard for me to let that go. Mm. And and I and one of the things I I think I was like generating some material around then a, about men and masculinity kind of stuff and mm-hmm. thinking about how and also in thinking about in relationships, I mean romantic friendships whatever that it took me a long time to realize I had to treat men gently as mm. I treat, you know, women and people of other genders gently. Because I, and and so when I sort of trace it back and think like, where where does that come from? I think that it sort of plays out in this piece in terms mm-hmm. of thinking about even as a child, I was, I was rough, you know, mm-hmm. I wasn't like a rough child, right. but, but I think it didn't occur to me to, that, that I might harm him, you know, yeah. that, that there could yeah. be something. Yeah. So I think that that's sort of where it comes from is mm-hmm. like a looking back, seeing myself in a way that, you know, I, you know, don't think was so great, but I was like eight or nine, I think right. when this happened. Right. So I was, you know, not fully formed yeah. by any stretch, but also seeing the way that that played out for me, you know, probably more like you know, up through my twenties, you know, mm, like I, mm-hmm. I think I kind of got it a little bit more after that. Yeah. It's sort of thinking about how I, I didn't get that, that men might have, might, might have some emotional vulnerability, I think, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. this was more about the physical vulnerability, but also right. a little bit the emotional. That is so interesting because Really, my next question, or not even not even a question, was just kind of a confession or statement, was mm-hmm. to say pretty much exactly what you just said. Like I had the same exact experience mm-hmm. where I didn't, for some reason, I also had a, you know, I mean, my dad was also a boomer in this. Well, he wasn't a boomer; he was a silent generation, but I mean, yeah. he was mm-hmm. a boomer, as in his voice yes. boomed. And um, but he was also an alcoholic and violent and, you know, all this other stuff, too. Mm-hmm. And so I had a lot of reason to not think about men's vulnerabilities, right? Mm-hmm. I thought about the vulnerability of my mother and my sister and me with regard to him. And it wasn't until, like, therapy in my 20s where you know, I, I vividly remember having conversations with my therapist where she was really kind of, like, not pushing, but, you know, encouraging me to confront the possibility that men also are human beings and have feelings. And I was just like, wow, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I, I mean, that sounds terrible. Of course, I realized they were human beings, but I also thought they were tough. I thought mm-hmm. that they were like, and and it's not just my father and just me. It's our culture, right? Like, and, right. and the boys and men think that of themselves, too, I think, a lot of the time. Well, and not, and now that you're talking about it, so, I mean, it seems like relatable content for you, you know, like mm-hmm. we both... But some of it is thinking that if we are the vulnerable ones, they are the powerful ones. Mm -hmm. And so really being very aware. And also, you know, I was a women's studies major. I was very, you know, aware of men's power through that lens as well. Mm -hmm. And I think it's hard to remember sometimes that people who have power in some ways also can be vulnerable. And Mm -hmm. that even if I have less power in some ways, I can also hurt them. Yeah. 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 This is like, this brings up, 
because I, I think it's not just about recognizing this, like, you know, as women who grew up in a certain particular historical moment, but also with our own backgrounds or whatever, that realizing that, you know, oh, like men or people in positions of power are also potentially vulnerable, we can hurt them, but also that it's worth caring about that. Like, I think that's actually a separate question, you know, which is not, I can I can kind of imagine, you know, it, I just feel like there's there's often, and this is like relates to your work so much too, but there's often this sort of impatience that I think people feel who are in marginalized positions who are like, yeah, sure, I don't, but I don't care. You know, that kind of, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yes, I recognize that, you know, this person who's in a structurally oppressive position with regard to me is also a human being, but I, like strategically, I, I, I can't afford to pay attention to that or I don't want to pay attention to that. And so it becomes like a really interesting, huge ethical question of like when, and I know we've had this conversation before. I think there was like a couple podcasts ago where I said something about how uh, I don't need to think of, I don't need to care about you if you're a Nazi. And, <laughs> you know mm-hmm. I mean? and you kind of raised your eyebrow at me. We didn't really do <laughs> that's your That's your work, right? It's like, you know, kind mm-hmm. of basically telling people you do actually have to think about, you know, you, the the feelings of people whose opinions and, and ideas you find repugnant, or, you know, that that's kind of part of what you have to do. And so I think this is interesting well, to think about this as an early example of what you mm-hmm. are actually now spending a lot of your time thinking about and writing about, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And it's funny, I was just saying to somebody the other day, I was like, you know, whenever you're talking about the political conflict stuff, I said, there's a point where someone will just bring up Nazis. And then I'm like, <laughs> all right, you know, now we're done. Like, yeah, you know, what, what are you going to say once you get to Nazis? Yeah. But, you know, mm-hmm. mo- my, but the point I always make is most people aren't Nazis. Right. You know, so, <laughs> right. so yeah. I'm not actually saying that you should spend all of your time trying to talk to Nazis. No. Um, I'm saying most people aren't and we shouldn't treat them like they are. Right. Um, right. Right. So that's a little bit more what my, yeah, my focus yeah. is. But yeah, it is very much a about and and yeah the the situation you're talking about with people sort of being like oh i don't i don't need to care about them because they mm-hmm. have power they have power and i have vulnerability right um and there is a piece of us feeling like we have this vulnerability across all situations and feeling like the victim across all situations mm-hmm. that actually now this was interesting because in the research i was doing for my book I found some very interesting stuff about like, if you have this kind of victim mentality where you see across all situations that you are the one who is the victim, then actually you have less empathy toward Mm, other people and Mm -hmm. you are, you know, much more punishing toward other people. And yeah, you don't care if you hurt them. Right. And, and so I thought that that was really interesting. So I guess, yeah, that, that is connected to this piece as well. This is like, I mean, I think what you're talking about is precisely encapsulated by the sort of, I think it's kind of died down now, but, you know, a couple of years ago, several years ago, up until pretty recently, this sort of like foment around the category of white women, right? Because, you know, obviously there have been, there's a lot of reason for women, even white women to feel vulnerable in certain positions and in certain, you know, you know, intersectionality has taught us this, right? That like you can occupy both vulnerable and powerful positions at the same time. But there was a lot of like anxiety about being, having it pointed out, you know, that like white women are like, well, I I grew up thinking of myself as a victim, primarily Mm -hmm. a victim because of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that pesky because old patriarchy. thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now you're telling me that like there's certain situations in which I'm not allowed to feel victimized or that I actually could be unconsciously or unwittingly or maybe even consciously and wittingly oppressing other people in a different matrix of power and vulnerabilities, right? And that it's really hard. It's hard to it's hard to feel to have that pointed out. Um and and especially it's hard I think to parse out all the various ways in which these things, these lines of force are operating in certain situations, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. how do you hold on to the idea that you can be both potentially an oppressor, which is a really uncomfortable thing to think of yourself as, and potentially victimized or marginalized or oppressed at the same time? It's really hard. And there's a lot of impatience around it too. But anyway, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, the work that I've done on privilege, you know, because I talk about, well, you know, I'm a biracial Asian American bisexual Jewish Buddhist woman, you know, so I've got all these target identities, but I'm also a relatively light-skinned, cisgender, U.S.-born citizen, currently Mm -hmm. able-bodied, you know, um, person who was raised with considerable economic and educational advantages. So. So I remember I gave a speech about this once I was president of my professional association and I'm like, I'm the first, you know, bisexual Asian American, blah, 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 (laughs) president of this um, organization. And people are like cheering. Yay. And then I say, and I'm also another, you know, and all of those privileges. Right, 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 right. And then it's like. Nobody's clapping for that. You know, everyone's yeah. just silent. They're like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I'm always like, you know, those target identities, there's a lot more identity around that. There's a lot more community around that. There's a lot more analysis of our situations in those roles. And so my point of a lot of the work that I was doing around this was people who have a strong association with a target identity or an oppressed identity, it can sometimes be harder to recognize our privileged identity. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard for everybody, I think, to connect to those. But especially when you've got this like strong identity as somebody who's been oppressed, and you've got community built around that and all of these things to also be like, oh, and here's where I also have advantages that are Mm -hmm. unearned. That's a challenge. So yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I I feel like, you know, I have this conversation sometimes with Scott and as far as I'm aware, I'm trying to think, is there a single category in which he is not privileged? No. <laughs> I mean, he's everything. He's tall. He's handsome. He's white. He's, you know, cisgender. He's straight. He's currently able-bodied. Um, he has an Ivy League degree. He has a cute accent, like every, <laughs> everything, <laughs> everything you can possibly imagine. I literally cannot think of a single category in which he is actually in a marginalized position as far mm-hmm. as I as far as I'm aware right now. He's an immigrant. And, yeah, yes. but he's he's a good immigrant quote he's a unquote. good immigrant. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he got his green card real fast and he's yeah. gonna be yeah, yeah. oh interesting. Yeah. No problems mm-hmm. there. But anyway, so we have these conversations sometimes and I'm often amazed at the ease with which he owns up to his privilege in a way mm-hmm. that's almost sometimes it almost kind of makes me a little annoyed, you know, where I'm like is this glib? Are you just saying it? I don't think it is. I don't think it's glib. I think he actually really doesn't have a lot of trouble. It's frictionless for him to say, yeah, I see all the ways in which, you know, I get it. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, whatever. Whereas I actually have a hard time sometimes with my privilege categories because I am attached to my target identities. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it is, it is actually harder to move back and forth between those things, I think, on some level, at least for me. And I think that's a lot where a lot of the white women stuff came from is like forcing people to recognize, you know, you have to let go of some of your comfortable, Mm -hmm. like secure kind of feeling of being oppressed in order to recognize the ways in which, (laughs) you know what I mean? It it, Mm -hmm. it is. It is. It's like it can be very. Yeah. There's something about the being the victim that you know, and being vulnerable that you don't have any responsibility, you know? That's that's what I mean by comfortable Yeah, Yeah, in a way. It's Mm -hmm. like, yeah, Mm -hmm. totally. Anyway, once again, we've strayed a little bit from (laughs) from your, from your poem. I want to come back. I was so worried because I was like, this one is so much shorter than most of the ones that I read. (laughs) And, but you know, we seem to have uh, ample ways to fill the time. (laughs) Oh, the the second I read it, I was like, oh, we're not, an hour is not enough. Like I was like, there's so much here. So, oh, wow. And we actually are coming up on an hour. So maybe this will be the last question before asking you if you have anything else you want to share. My, I guess my last question is, I want to know, you, you mentioned what happens to James at the end, right? Mm-hmm. And that he ends up being a, a and I, I guess I kind of want to ask, I read that, the thing about him being taciturn teen with his, and I love the alliteration there, with his dusty boots, is that he ends up occupying or, or or moving seamlessly into that position of masculinity where he's not acting vulnerable. He's not, you know, he seems perfectly self-contained and, and et cetera. I guess my question is just, first of all, factual one, like, ha- have you seen him since then? What happened to him? What is he like? Um, did that all come true? And I guess the other one is more like an interpretive question. Uh, I mean, I was left at the end with feeling very much like 
I don't want to say not depressing. That's way too strong a word, but a little melancholy. You know, there's something mm. about the kind of a sense of lost possibility there that like one second he's a boy crying on the couch and allowing himself or, you know, involuntarily, you know, expressing vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And then there's a real loss, you know, with him becoming the clove cigarette smoking, dusty booted, taciturn teen. Um, so I guess, yeah, two questions. What happened to James? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and did you feel and and or did you intend for that feeling of melancholy or loss that, you know, masculinity has a lot of privileges associated with it, but it also has a lot of downsides and a lot oh, of yeah. losses. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So a couple things. Um, an hour ago, I uh, looked up James on Facebook because <laughs> like, I, I had yeah, no where idea what happened yeah. to him. Mm. And. And he's fine. Uh, <laughs> good, so good, good, good. He, he seems to have survived this incident quite, <laughs> quite well. <laughs> I wonder if he remembers it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know if he remembers me. But so, yeah. So I don't really know because honestly, like, I didn't ever know him that well. Yeah, um, he yeah. went to a different high school or a different school. And so, mm-hmm. so I just, you know, I glimpsed him, I would say. Right. But I think right. that the funny thing is, yeah, I was like, like, you know, because I say a crush worthy taciturn teen. I was, you know, I was like, oh, like, cute, you know, mm-hmm. but he's, you know, and of course, I was in theater. So we're all smoking clove cigarettes. So that was just, you know, right, what, right. What, <laughs> what, what there were clouds of around us. Um, yeah. But it is that thing that bothers some men who wear their vulnerability more, more forwardly, that, mm-hmm you know, the, the teenage girls and maybe, you know, on into women are attracted to these kind of more shut downing, shut down yeah. uh, men. Yeah. So, so anyway, I, I don't think that that's necessarily true of me across the board, but I was, you know, I thought yeah. it was cute. Um, at that age, of course. At that yeah. age, yes. Yeah. So, so there is something, there's so much we could unpack there. That I know. Theories, I'm already right? thinking like another whole hour about like, you know, how not just how do you what does it take to learn that men are vulnerable human beings who deserve mm-hmm. care, but also like how do you undo, you know, if you are attracted to men erotically or sexually or romantically, how do you undo no matter what gender you are as a attract door. No, attract You know what I mean? The person who's feeling the attraction. Yeah. Um, regardless <laughs> of what gen, exactly. Mm-hmm. Regardless of what your that the gender identity of the person feeling the attraction is, mm-hmm. if you know you're if you are primarily or in a moment or whatever attracted to a cisgender man, mm-hmm. like like how do you you know what what is the process of like learning to find different kinds of masculinity attractive, right? Because mm-hmm. we are so acculturated initially anyway to mm-hmm. feel exactly as you said like the shutdown hypermasculine whatever blah 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 and that that's a the real journey right is to like actually and i think the two journeys are really related to each other recognizing mm-hmm. that men are human beings <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm Number laughing one. at everything. <laughs> Men are human beings. <laughs> just like, and two, that, you know, that there are other ways of being men that we want to encourage, right? And that actually, yeah. and find, you know, worthy of like attraction as well as love and care and tenderness and all that good stuff. So, yeah. And I think that one of the, one of the things that's hardest for men in patriarchy is just how restrictive the gender roles are yeah. and yeah. how, how, Everybody, you know, kind of uh, sanctions men for for moving out of those really restrictive uh, mm-hmm. roles. So, yeah, I don't, I don't envy that kind. No. You know, as yeah, mm. not at all. So, mm-hmm. any last thoughts you want to share? Things that we didn't get to talk about? Well, I want to. I want you just to list out all the rest of your questions because I, I don't have a thing. To, <laughs> you know, but I'm like, oh, I want to know what all the rest of your questions are because also not just for me, but like listeners, you know, I'm so I'm very curious about, you know, we're, I think we're having, we have talks about lots of different kinds of things, but I feel like, you know, I'm curious how other people are experiencing these kinds of things and yeah. And, yeah, Me curious too. about that, but I don't know if you have anything else that's just, you know, top of mind to sort of say, here are some thought question things. Yeah, I guess my most of my questions would revolve around gender identity, gender roles, like, 
Do you, could you, like as a thought experiment, could you imagine rewriting this poem piece so that the person who you were tugging on was a girl and how, you know, obviously it would, it would have a whole different set of meetings and associations, but are there, you know, can you reverse the roles? Can you think about ways in which, uh, you know, the, the kind of, I don't know, implicit relationships would shift or whatever. Um, and then just also thinking about how, like, you know, would it change if the person doing the tugging was also, was like a butch, you know, tomboy or for, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like what, how would, right. how would those things change if there were like, not just boy, girl, Mm-hmm. But but kind of different gradations or shades of gender identity within right. those categories. Okay, not at all an answer to that question. But the <laughs> last thing I want to share that popped into my mind, this this could now go on for another half hour conversation, mm-hmm. I think. But I was thinking about, you know, this all happened in the 1970s. And I was thinking, do you remember there was this TV show, Battle of the Sexes? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, where there would be like famous people, women and men who were competing in these, you know, I, I, can't I think it was what. a spinoff of Athletic Battle of the Network Adventure. Stars, wasn't it? Or, or oh, one, or one or was, maybe, I feel it was the same franchise right. or one was a spinoff of the other. But yeah. 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 And then there mm-hmm. was like Billie Jean King, you know, like mm-hmm. in women's sports. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of sort of women competing against men kind of stuff. And then I was thinking about my mother also like was very women power, but like, oh, we're going to best the men, yeah. um, you know, kind of that perspective. So I think that there was a culture of this kind of idea of, of there, there's a battle here, you know, it's a competition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that's, that kind of sneaks into my understanding of all of this as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Huh. I wonder what happened. I mean, we don't do that anymore so much. Like the kind of obsession, maybe it's because it was like, quote unquote, women's lib, you know, or that mm-hmm. it was something about, I mean, maybe it's actually not such a great sign, honestly, that all of that stuff, that energy has gone underground in a way. We don't talk about the ERA anymore. We don't talk about like, you know, maybe there was something about that kind of combative metaphorics or whatever in the public sphere that was mm-hmm. maybe kind of... Oh my God. I'm just suddenly like falling into, sorry. I was literally about to say salutary. I apologize for that sentence. The metaphorics were salutary people. This is, (laughs) this is how people in my profession normally talk. And I try not to do that (laughs) in this space. (laughs) Because I won't understand. Well, it's just, it's just silly jargon, but it's not silly, but anyway, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that it was, there was something about it that was actually kind of, I don't know, helping us work some stuff out or whatever, who knows, but yeah. Well, and hmm. hopefully we found other ways, other ways of advocating for people of all genders. And I think also people of all genders have have reason to want to support each other um, mm-hmm. because patriarchy does limit all of us in yeah. so many ways. So yeah. Hmm. yeah. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, on that note, <laughs> now that we've now that we've solved patriarchy, <laughs> thanks for tuning in. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much again, Tanya, for sharing that um, obviously very thought provoking piece. Mm-hmm. So it was really lovely. Thanks again. Well, thank and you. We'll, I love yeah. doing this. Awesome. All right. We'll see you all next time. Bye. Listeners, if you liked what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and share so more folks can find us. You can follow us on social media at Dr. Wafflepod, that's D-R Wafflepod, all one word, or email us at drwafflepod at gmail.com. Check out the show notes for websites and other info. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.